Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to a special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined by Kara Marciscano, who's a Senior Analyst at Wisdom Tree, and Mary D'Onfrio at, at Bessemer Venture Partners. We're going to be talking about the cloud computing space uh, and a recent report that Mary just released. Uh, I should just note quickly that Kara and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. and is not an endorsement recommendation of any company, security, or investment strategy. The views of Mary are her own and not those of those of Chips affiliates. It's going to be a really interesting discussion, Mary. You guys have been focused at Bessemer on the cloud computing space, worked with NASDAQ to create an index of these cloud computing stocks, uh, you know, and WisdomTree has licensed that index. It's it's really fascinating. You guys prepare annually for this Cloud 100 event, and I guess you're, you're starting to update some research for the private cloud space. Talk about uh, what it is that you guys do every year for this Cloud 100 and, and why it's so important. Sure. So um, the Cloud 100 is basically a list that Forbes publishes and um, with input from a bunch of judges who are generally the CEOs of public cloud companies and some input from from Bessemer Venture Partners and Salesforce Ventures um, to basically make the top 100 list of the best private cloud companies in the world. And the reason that it's so important is, first of all, um, getting onto the list as uh, my recent Cloud 100 benchmarks report um, uh, signals is incredibly difficult. The average Cloud 100 company is worth an average of uh, $1.7 billion. So what you see is that the minimum threshold that's necessary, the minimum scale to get onto that list is incredibly high and incredibly impressive. More broadly, though, it becomes a benchmark for the, the state of the cloud industry more broadly because we're taking that top 100 list every year and seeing how it grows over time. And as we have seen in uh, the BBP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index that Wisdom Tree did license, um, you're seeing tremendous growth in the cloud computing, cloud computing ecosystem more broadly. Yeah, a lot of people wonder, um, they look at history and say, can it keep up this growth? You know, it's been so, and this year in particular, I mean, the index is up 50% year to date here at the end of the first quarter, basically is when you think about the pipeline, these these private companies are the ones coming to the market that people will, you know, will become public and will, will likely get added to the index over time. I mean, talk about that backlog, like how deep, how do how does that market compare? And as you think about that investment opportunity set, what what's, what's the sense here? Sure. So um, of the 2019 list, only um, seven total companies have gone public or gotten inquired which suggests that there are um, 90, 93 companies worth an average of $1.7 billion that we're going to end up at adding to the public cloud market cap or private cloud market cap as well. But what we see is half of them end up getting uh, going public and half end up getting acquired. So you're getting almost uh, 
you're, you're getting uh, billions of dollars that we can see adding to the public cloud market cap over time. And more broadly, the, the question about the underlying growth of the, of the cloud segment, if you look at the broader um, BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index, the average cloud company is growing an astonishing 35%, even through the coronavirus pandemic. And if you look at the first quarter of 2020, 95% of cloud companies beat their consensus estimates. What you see is ongoing growth, even in the middle of a pandemic, which is which we would argue is because of the digital transformation that COVID actually unlocked for a lot of cloud companies, opening up their next um, wave of growth. Um, so I like what you said that the cloud 100 list itself is sort of like a benchmark. So I, your report is super powerful. There's so much information in there. Uh, one of the highlights was that between 2016 and 2019, the IRR internal rate of returns for the 2016 to 2019 list was 50 to 70%, which is staggering. So what do you think is going on with private cloud valuations? Does this year feel different? in terms of the absolute level of valuation and you know just what is going on there and do you think coronavirus has had any impact on private valuations obviously we've seen it on the public side as well sure i, I think you have two things happening concurrently so first of all there is the move to cloud software from legacy on-premise software um, I co-authored the State of the Cloud 2020, and in that we we talk about how we think that um, cloud is going to overpower on-premise software over time, and currently represents about 30% and growing. Um, so what you see is a transition from on-prem software to cloud software revenue. But at the same time, the revenue is growing. You also see the underlying multiples growing. And the reason for that is the fact that investors, I believe, have understood more and more that um, the recurring nature of uh, uh, cloud subscription revenue is incredibly powerful, combined with the really high margin structures. So whereas um, other types of software might have pretty mediocre gross margins and free cash flow margins, the average um, BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index company has gross margins above 70% and free cash flow margins of 15%. So the combination is incredibly powerful. What you have is very is stickier, uh, stickier, lower churn, higher retention companies with with fantastic margin profiles. Um, and that has been more and more rewarded by investors over time that are giving them higher underlying multiples, rewarding that future growth. Um, so the combination is that um, uh, there, there are cloud companies have higher revenue and higher multiples, increasing valuation over time. Uh, tying that to the 2020 list, what I believe, and, and obviously it's up to the judges, but what I believe is that the minimum valuation that will be required to get on the list will increase and as will the average valuation. I wouldn't be surprised if it were over 2 billion this time. Talk about that September event. Like when is it going to be again? Last year was we, we uh, it was right, right at the beginning of September. Is it, how's it going to go with the, the virtual this year? So, so that's in process right now. I can't actually speak to the, to all of the logistics, but it will be a fantastic virtual event, and we anticipate bringing in um, uh, public cloud CEOs um, that service kind of the, the the beacons for for our private cloud companies and and help to kind of set the stage of what their companies can become. Um, potentially some some uh, kind of celebrities who also like to invest in cloud software. Last year we had Steph Curry, who was a fantastic contributor to the event, um, and so you can anticipate something something similar. All be it in a different format. Great. So you talked a lot about exits in the benchmark report that you talked about. So do you think 
a lot of value for these, some of these exits is coming from M&A, or do you think it's coming from IPOs or the companies that sort of just stay on the list every year? Or how many companies do stay on the list year to year without having an exit? You could just break some of those stats down. Yeah. Um, so there have been a total of 178 total companies that have appeared on Cloud 100 lists. And obviously there are 400, there, there are 100 companies per year in four years. So there is some carryover year to year. Um, what we are seeing, though, is is the exits. A lot of the incremental value is really being driven by public market appreciation. So for all of the companies that have gone public or for the companies that have gone public from the Cloud 100 list, about 70% of their value accretion has actually happened while public. And, and you know, as as you mentioned with with uh, the BVP, NASDAQ, Emerging Cloud Index, you can see how that value appreciation is really uh, possible there with, you know, almost 50% year-to-date to year growth. Um, at exit, there's been $147 billion of uh, total Cloud 100 exits on the 2016 list as an example and same with the 2017 list 147 billion we're seeing the majority of that coming from ipos but MA is is representing a good chunk as well and what do you think drives the decision to go with an exit where you're getting acquired or moving into the public markets and what do you see for 2020 do you see more MA exits or maybe more public market entrances well, one of the things that um, I would argue drives it is the, the valuation environment in which um, these cloud companies are pricing. So, for example, um, you know, the benefit of, of IPOs is that you can go public and then appreciate in the public markets and, and take advantage of all of that upside. Um, the, the downside of M&A, particularly cash M&A is that you are, are, are capped at the total value of that cash acquisition. And so in these kind of lofty multiple environments, I would anticipate more companies to go public, or at the very least, if they do M&A, to capture some of that upside um, by uh, seeking, seeking a stock deal. Um, I do think that for the rest of the year, we're seeing that the, the companies that have had some COVID tailwinds are and have some stock price appreciation now have a lot um, of, of uh, they have opportunity to be acquisitive and to go opportunistically after assets that could help add to their business. And I do think that the M&A environment is going to um, uh, continue for stocks that are, are performing incredibly well. Um, for very strong private companies, I think that the majority would try to go public themselves. Mira, what do you focus on day to day at Bessemer? Tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are the companies you're investing in, thinking about? Like, what do you what do you focus on for them? Sure. So I'm a vice president at Bessemer, and I joined two years ago to start the growth investing practice. And I primarily focus on cloud software and have invested in companies, including LaunchDarkly, HashiCorp, and HyperScience. Um, and at Bessemer, I obviously, I track both uh, private and public cloud software and am one of the primary architects behind the BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index. Um, and I have also co-authored some of our big uh, cloud leadership pieces, including the 10 laws of cloud and the state of the cloud. Um, so uh, that's what I primarily focus on. And so I'm mostly going after growth stage companies, call it Series C and beyond, focused in cloud. Uh, and and so is it, when you think about that Series C and on, is that uh, it's mostly still in the cloud? It, when you think about the growth the growth practice, how does that differ than the traditional Bessemer? They're earlier stage Series A and, and you're coming in a little bit later? Uh, great question, and, and apologies for not giving that historical context. Bessemer is one of the oldest venture capital firms. 
pardon me, uh, founded in 1911 as an offshoot of, or or founded after out of um, the Phipps family um, who made their money in Carnegie Steel. And it originally started as Bessemer Trust and then Bessemer Venture Partners spun out in the 80s as an independent venture firm, Um, historically focused more on early stage, so Series A, Series B. um, And while a a very uh, prolific practice realized that they were missing out on later stage deals that could still represent materially um, uh, return positive investments. And so they brought me in two years ago um, to start uh, taking advantage of some of our, our cloud proprietary access and to to start to uh, to put a, a growth lens on the companies that we were getting access to. And so that extends to both um, follow on opportunities in our own deals. So deals like um, the second round of Launch Darkly, which we led, or a recent round in Toast, um, but also net new deals as well. So um, things like HashiCorp or HyperScience. And we're focused on both. Um, And then we raised a $525 million dedicated growth fund last October. Very cool. Uh, and, and is there, as you think about going to those later stage investments, I mean, how are you thinking about the growth rates that you're trying to achieve and, and so the profiles of the companies and, and how that compares to the public markets? Like, where is there is there something different about what you're investing in those later stage privates versus the public markets? Yeah. So so what you see is that over time, the average um, cloud software company tends to trade off growth for profitability. So in the public cloud arena, we see about 35% year over year growth and then 15% free cash flow margins. But that's really anchored by companies like, for example, Adobe, right, which is a very, very old company that's optimizing for long term free cash flow margin profitability at this point in its maturity. Um, In the private markets, we tend to see more of a a we tend to see more of a weighting towards the growth profile. So best in class, even late stage companies tend to be growing over 100% a year, which is not the expectation you'd have in the public markets. So for me, as a, as a cloud software investor, I tend to optimize for um, you know companies that are growing as fast as possible while doing so in a capital efficient way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting seeing even these public decks, seeing the rule of 40 coming out, you know, people trying to get this high high margin, but high growth uh, and sort of how they balance it, you know, as you get into the tech world, this rule of 40 keeps popping up and uh, sounds like you're getting even higher growth in, in those later stage deals. So it's great, great to talk. Kara, any final questions while, before we wrap up with Mary? No, I think that was great. Covered everything. Well, thanks, Mary. We'll check in with you as you get more information on this uh, private event you're doing again for the private 100 in 2020. Um, thanks for all your support and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. We're going to be focusing on cloud computing software to surface. We have the co-founder of Okta, Frederick Karras, COO. Discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products and is not an endorsement recommendation of any company, security, or investment strategy. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Ships affiliates. Co-founder, Frederick, uh, tell us a little bit for people who don't know Okta, tell we use it every day at Wisdom Tree. We sort of log in, we get a sign on to everything that we have access to, but tell people a little bit about Okta. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jeremy, for having uh, me today. I'm uh, very excited to be here. So, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I am the Executive Vice Chairman, Chief Operating Officer, co founder of an enterprise software and security company called Okta. We are a public company now for three years. Uh, we built a platform called the Okta Identity Cloud, and uh, that gives uh, the right user the right access at the right time to the right application. And that's very important, especially now, 
because as every organization is adopting more cloud applications for their workforces and everyone's trying to develop new digital experiences for their customers, um, you know, we play in both of these big trends. So for workforce, what that means is we help organizations, so companies like yours, provide easy and secure access to the applications and the services that you as an employee need to do your work from any, from any device, anywhere, anytime. And then on the customer side, we help organizations streamline the sign-in processes to create better user experiences and also enhancing security. And I think security there is one of the key pieces, obviously. Over the last decade, the number of public breaches has gone through the roof. I think over 10 billion records have been exposed publicly in the last 15 years. 80% of those breaches caused by lost or stolen credentials. So just a big opportunity to help people enhance the user experience, whether that's for an employee or a consumer, and enhance security while you're doing that. Yeah, like we're always forgetting our passwords. You have all of these different places. How do you keep your password secure? And then how do you manage all these things? How do you make sure that all of our data is secure? Like how do you stay ahead of the, the people who are trying to steal our data? That's exactly right. So, um, you know, the, there's a, a big part of what we do is we offer this uh, secure identity platform for not only you as a private sector, but large organizations, whether it's large companies like JetBlue and Nordstrom and Takeda Pharmaceutical or large swaths of the government who use our platform. We spend a lot of time and effort and energy. We're obviously a security software company focusing on how we manage that data, uh, making sure it's private, making sure it's secure, making sure no one can see it. But there's also a big part of that, which is we have a different business model than some of the big tech providers out there, the Googles and the Facebooks who also have these advertising businesses. We only have one business. It's enterprise software. We sell it to the people who use the service. The data that's in there is theirs. We can't see it. We make no money off that, uh, nor will we ever. Now, how did you originally come to thinking of founding Octa? Tell us a little bit about your background and, and what got you got you there. Yeah, sure. Uh, obviously, we're just on, on radio today, but if you could see me, I was a lot taller and better looking when we started 11 years ago. Uh, certainly, it's been a very interesting and, and entertaining time at building Okta, but I think the, the background to that is, uh, is pretty relevant, as you mentioned. So my background is all in, uh, in computer science and software. Uh, I got a computer science degree uh, as an undergrad. I wrote uh, software for a few years, uh, and then I was fortunate to start at Salesforce.com in 2002. So there was a couple hundred people there. I was there for five years. We built a number of businesses. The company went public. That's also where I met, incidentally, my co-founder, um, Todd McKinnon, who was the head of engineering there at that time. Um, and then we're both enterprise software folks, and we saw in the markets, we obviously drank a lot of uh, Kool-Aid to the value of uh, subscription software or enterprise cloud when we were at Salesforce. And we thought that it was just a much better way of delivering a lot of technology to most companies. Most companies are in the business of you know, manufacturing tractors or pencils or developing drugs. They're not in the business of running core software, pieces of software infrastructure as their core business. So the more that you can offer what we call, con what I call context software, all the software that's not core to your business, the email, the collaboration, the CRM, the customer uh, access management information, the financials, the uh, HR information, all these things should just run in the public cloud by large providers who provide this. But we knew that for that vision to happen, someone had to create this new integration layer and identity was gonna have to become an important thing. And that's how we started with the Okta Identity Cloud in 2009 and, and here we are 11 and a half years later. When you think about the shift to, you know, you're talking about the 
the shift to enterprise software on the cloud, where would you say, you know, because every this has been for sure the hottest segment of the markets, and people wonder how long can it last? Where are we in the cycle? Um, maybe talk generally yeah. before Okta, like where would you say companies are in the transition to cloud-based as, as just a whole industry? Yeah, I mean, we are very early in this cycle and people always say, how is that possible? All I hear is cloud this, cloud that, cloud the other thing. Well, I know that uh, you and many of the folks on, on uh, who listen are uh, interested in data from time to time. So I'll give you a couple data points that might help uh, illu uh, illuminate that a little more. So. Uh, I went back and we had our 10 year anniversary as a company just last year. We spent a lot of time, obviously, uh, we, you know, we're, we're a, a people driven business. So we spent a lot of time with our employees talking to them about where we're going, what we're doing, what the vision, what the mission is, all these kinds of things. So we had a 10 year anniversary uh, kickoff last year. And I went back and looked at some data uh, just to kind of put this specific topic in perspective and really talk about how Look, the last two, three years since we've been public, uh, since April 2017, when we went public on NASDAQ, have been very excited. Uh, business has been good. We're fortunate. Um, and don't get me wrong, if you'd given me all this you know, data on where we are today as a company when we started, if you told me it would be a you know, uh, $750 million plus revenue company growing you know, north of 40% with 2,700 employees public for three years uh, and growing nicely, I would have taken that with 8,400 customers, I would have taken that in a heartbeat. But based on where I am today and looking for the next three, five, 10 years are gonna be way more exciting and way more interesting. And so that's one thing to just say that, but when you can back it up with kind of some of the stats that are out there, I think it really gives a lot of uh, depth to that argument. So here's some data. Uh, if you look from 2009 to 2019, enterprise IT, as an overall spend category, grew from about 3.2 to about 3.8 trillion worldwide. So that's 20% growth, which is you know very respectful based on on the size of that of that market alone. If you look at enterprise software growth over that time, it went from about 220 to about 430 billion. So again, 2x, you know, very good. If you look at enterprise software as a service, or what we now call enterprise cloud, it went from about seven and a half billion to about 95 billion. So that's 12x growth. And you're like, hey, there's no way if it already grew 12x, how's it gonna keep growing? Well, I think what's most interesting there is the ratios of those things. So the ratio of enterprise cloud to enterprise software overall is still less than 20%. And if you look at it as a ratio of enterprise IT overall, it's like 3%. Hmm. So to what I was saying earlier, look, not all of software is going to go to a cloud service. Goldman Sachs is not going to put their proprietary trading platform in the public cloud anytime soon. But all this context software that runs around it, how every company runs HR and financials and how they run their accounting systems um, and how they might run their email systems and their collaboration suites, these are not core competencies. And in fact, they're cost centers and you're not an expert at it. If you're John Deere, the tractor manufacturer, great Okta customer, you're not in the business of running the best email server in the world. And even if you did, it's not a sustainable competitive differentiator versus the other guy. So only 20% of all software this year that's going to be sold in the enterprises cloud. What does that mean? That means 80% is still on premises. Now, the reason you say, how is this possible is you don't see any headlines that say, I revolutionized my company and moved it forward by implementing the latest version of SAP on premises. But that's actually what 80% of people are going to be doing this year. And so that's why if you really think about it and take a step back with the growth that we're seeing in enterprise IT and in software and in cloud, we really are in the first or second innings 
of this massive transformation that is undoubtedly going to be the biggest enterprise and technology shift that I'm going to see in, in my career. So that's, uh, that, well, that's a very good perspective. I like that, that the ratios and the only 3% of the total spend. I, it's, a, it's a great story. As you think about how do you, how does Okta try to position to take advantage of it? You have sort of an existing offering today and, and you sort of said the next five to 10 years is is more interesting going forward. I mean, is that because the penetration is going to be deeper? Is it because you're expanding different segments, different products? How do you think about that that growth rate going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, grow, I mean, growth rate's one part of it, obviously. It's a big part of it. But in general, I just think the opportunities, the, the revenue, the scale, the customer base, the information, the uh, tools that we're going to be able to provide are much more interesting. And, and here's why I say that. So, you know, we're in two big markets today. Uh, the first one's workforce identity and access management, which is known as traditional enterprise and identity management. Uh, it's been around in the enterprise for 30 years. It used to be old vendors, IBM, Oracle, CA, RSA provided old legacy on-premises software around identity management. Uh, it's still a big business. It's growing fast. I think we we look at a total addressable market on the order of about $30 billion this year. Um, and, you know, that's continuing to grow nicely. The second business we're in is customer identity and access management. Um, which is, again, you know, if you look at customers like JetBlue, if you have a true blue number, your affinity program, we run all that for JetBlue. Or if you're one of the 60 million consumers that goes and logs into MLB.com when there is baseball to see baseball games, uh, we run all that infrastructure for them. So that's customer identity management. You know, that's traditionally been a build versus buy story. But as the complexity has gone up, as digital transformation has become an important topic, every CEO in the world needs to think about how they're going to move their initiatives forward more aggressively in terms of digital. Uh, customer identity management becomes a big market, too. That today we estimate is about $25 billion of total addressable market. So, look, the markets that we're in today where we are the, you know, the market leaders and, and setting the standard for what's going to happen are north of $50 billion. That's why I said if you'd given me the stats when I started the company and said this is what you're going to build, I would have said killer. But now that I look at these markets that are $50 billion and my company is less than a billion dollars of revenue, it's like a nice small business, right? It's a quaint little business that, again, is growing nicely. But as an entrepreneur, you're always like, I need to do more, I need to do it faster, and I need to do it yesterday. Like, why can't we be bigger? So, first of all, there's just a very big opportunity there. And those markets are all growing as everyone needs to address all these uh, big issues. And the, the big, the big uh, mega trends that we're riding, right, and that put us in the first or second inning, they're around uh, hybrid IT, right? Everyone wants to use their on-premise infrastructure but wants to buy these new cloud services for their employees and make it all work. Number two, digital transformation, like we talked about. I think it's one of the most overused terms in the industry. What it means very simply is every uh, company needs to find a better way to interact with their customers, their partners, their vendors, their suppliers, digitally applications on the web, these kinds of things. And then finally, enhanced security, as you started with, right? As everyone uh, is doing more digitally, as they're doing it remotely, as they're doing it on any device, the security threat and the security landscape uh, becomes much more challenging for any IT department to manage. And so those are the three big things that we're doing. But why I think it's going to be so exciting is, you know, there's a lot of value in running the service as a central cloud service, running an identity service as a central cloud service. And it's pretty funny when we started the business, you know, we had a lot of folks who took me and Todd aside and said, hey, we like you guys. You're both great guys. You have great reputations. Why do you want to go and start an identity management company? And we said, well, what do you mean? They said, it has a terrible reputation. It's like the track record is horrible. No one's successful with these things. You guys are going to sully your reputations. 
And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're like, oh, no one can do it. That's like catnip. Like, I have to do it now. So yeah. it turns out that running it as a central cloud service is much more valuable. Um, you know, very specific examples are today we have the uh, Okta Integration Network, which is a central catalog of, you know, almost 7,000 different pieces of technology that are deeply pre-integrated into the service. So if you're a new customer, you show up, you're using an email service from, you know, uh, from Microsoft or from Google, you're using a, a CRM service from Salesforce, you're using HR from Workday and ITSM from ServiceNow. Instead of having to write all these bespoke integrations, they're right there. It's like click, 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 boom and go, right? So that's a huge value. And why that's valuable is because there's a, a natural uh, virtuous cycle there because as there's more and more services, there's more and more pieces of technology and software that are developed out there, as companies go into these startups, try and go and sell them to big companies, these big companies are customers of ours a lot of times. So they'll say, hey, I'll buy your new software, Jeremy, as an entrepreneur, but you've got to pre-integrate it to Okta. And so that you as Jeremy, as the entrepreneur, will come and integrate that thing to Okta so that you can go back to your product prospect and say it's available, but now instantly 8,500 other customers have instant access to that integration. It improves your business, it improves uh, the startup's opportunities, and just enhances the overall spectrum of it. Take another slice of that, which I think is very interesting, and it's all about the data. I mean, you, you see that we, you know, we process billions of authentications every month now on the service. So what that means is we can use those in aggregate to make the service better. I'll give you a specific example. We have a set of products called Threat Insights. It's around user insights, it's around administrative insights. And it's basically like if there's a nefarious, if you, Jeremy, are the CIO of a large organization and you're an Okta customer, perhaps there's a nefarious actor trying to do a DDoS or uh, do some, uh, some phishing uh, attempts on your specific service and a number of your employees. We as Okta, first of all, we help block that, we thwart you know, many, many attempts every day from uh, nation states, from nefarious actors, from all sorts of things. But not only that, once we've protected you, we can instantly turn around and protect 8,400 other customers. And so as these data sets grow, there's more and more things we can do to proactively and implicitly enhance the service that we're offering for all of our customers. And there's a lot of very cool things you can do there. We can start to find out more about you, Jeremy, and your pattern of behavior, you log in Monday through Friday from the uh, Philadelphia or Pennsylvania area, nine to five, let's say, all of a sudden, 2 a.m. Sunday morning, you're trying to hit one of the financial systems at your company from Eastern Europe, probably not you, put your user in the penalty box, let you maybe access email and calendar till Monday morning when security SecOps shows up, you can send a bunch of alerts, and that kind of automated management, when you can start to do that at scale as a central cloud service, is very, very valuable to customers. That, that's sort of a lot of threads in there from the, you know, this artificial intelligence, the, the, the big get bigger, you know, and the, the rules to scale that as you get bigger, the more your service becomes valuable. And that's, that's largely been the sort of trend. We talked about cloud being the hot category for a much longer time. You've had the, the main horsemen in tech, you know, the, the Amazon, Google, Microsoft, you know, they seem indomitable. Like you can't, uh, now, do you think about them coming into your space? How do you think about their growth generally and, and what they're offering? Yeah, well, um, absolutely happy to talk about that. You, we need to split out one thing here, which is, some of those folks you talked about, Microsoft, Google, good examples, they have big uh, enterprise businesses, but they also have big consumer businesses. So I'm gonna leave the consumer business aside because 
how you know whether Google's fighting Facebook for more ad revenue off Jeremy and Frederick, I don't think is is uh, is as relevant. Number one, number two, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, I do know a few things about enterprise software, so I will focus on those sides of the thing uh, of the uh, of the conversation. So um, you know, the first thing is, uh, look, every large cloud vendor out there has to have a core component of identity because they have to tie all of their own products together. So when we were leaving Salesforce, you know, uh, Todd and I had a conversation with Mark and he said, hey, it would be great if you actually built this product at Salesforce. And we said, well, Mark, we can't do that because if we did, we're going to be beholden to the Salesforce products. So we're going to tie all those in really well together. But you can imagine we're never going to have the best integrations to Microsoft's Dynamic 365 product because otherwise our customers might go look at that product, which is obviously not in the best interest of, of Salesforce.com stakeholders. Um, and so really to run this business, you have to be independent. You have to be neutral. You know, kind of the Switzerland approach is part of the value of what we do because we are the best provider for identity for Microsoft Office 365 suite. So for everyone trying to deploy email at scale, large organizations, you know, around the world with very complex environments, we're the number one provider. We have the most you know, track record of success as highly rated on the Microsoft website by Microsoft customers, all these kinds of things. At the same time, we're also the preferred vendor for Google's LCS, large customer segment. So every uh, customer over a thousand employees, we are the preferred vendor for Google to bring in and say, hey, you should help them. At the same time, we're the only identity provider that is a managed partner by AWS. So when AWS gets in these tough situations, they say, hey, you know what? This is pretty complex and identity is pretty important. Let's bring in our friends at Okta. And the story plays out. If you look at the top, I don't know, 25 of the top 30 software as a service vendors, Workday and uh, ServiceNow and Dropbox and Box and all these kinds, they're all, first of all, customers of ours, so they use our applications internally, which means that the Workday rep and the ServiceNow rep, when they go talk to a company, they'll when they log in to demo their product, they log in using Okta. So by the time we've gotten there, the, the customer's been like, yeah, I've already seen Okta like four times because the other guys all demoed it. Number two, they start integrating us and using our product. So if you go file a trouble ticket on the ServiceNow website, for example, that's actually running Okta's uh, customer identity and access management infrastructure. And then the third thing is they start to really just embed us right in there. So we are the default embedded solution in ServiceNow's mid-market product, in Ring Central's product, in Atlassian's product, in all these products where as customers get up and running and start integrating it into the enterprise, it's automatically plugged into Okta. So, you know, the, these companies all are going to have identity uh, products they need to because their suites start to get so broad. But, you know, Microsoft's done us a huge favor. They've basically been walking around for the last five years with a megaphone telling everyone to move email, the most critical collaboration application in the enterprise, to the public cloud. I mean, no one could have done us a better service on the future of contact software is the cloud than Microsoft. So for us, you know, as they all get bigger and their enterprise software, uh, enterprise business software businesses grow, that just provides uh, more value that we can provide to end customers and very good partnerships with all those folks uh, across the board. Very fascinating. I mean, it's the whole ecosystem. It, it's uh, it's interesting to wonder, like, how, you know, given what's going on in the market as investors, people are just skeptical. All this, they, They're naturally skeptical. Can it all continue? And these growth rates, you know, from you guys to the big the big tech players, uh, it, it's sort of fascinating how, how it's developed. In the tech space generally, one of the things you guys had talked about in your investor decks um, is the rule of 40. And yeah. uh, it's something I've 
I, you know, as becoming more interested, I've been getting closer to the Best Venture Partners team, and they've been uh, talking about the real estate. I, I heard your, I heard your uh, interview with Byron Dieter, who's a good friend of mine. I was just listening it, to it uh, the other day. Very interesting conversation. You really managed to tease out a lot of nuggets from that conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, cool. So yeah, so tell us about how you guys have thought about the rule of 40 and what and as you try to optimize between growth and cash flow, how you try to make that balance when you think you want to really step on the cash flow metrics versus just growth metrics. Exactly. So as you mentioned, um, you know, the rule of 40 shows uh, kind of how you can have the right balance in a financial model and have strong revenue growth and at the same time, steady free cash flow expansion. And, you know, I think of it as uh, very simply, I like to I like to think of us as running the business as uh, mature, responsible adults, which means you want to have growth. And obviously, these are big markets, as I've highlighted, that we want to grow into. At the same time, you know, in a capitalist economy, business is about generating cash and generating profits. So making sure you have the right balance of how fast you can grow and still do that intelligently while showing leverage in the model and generating more free cash flow and ultimately operating profitably is very, very important. It always has been. We've actually looked at a similar kind of metric since very early on in the company. And this, the, the simple version of that when you're a private company is what's the payback on sales investment, right? If I'm going to invest so, so much into if I invest a dollar, when do I get that payback? If you're an enterprise business like ours, you're pretty fortunate, right? Multi-year contracts, paid, uh, you know, annual cash upfront payments, and you know you can really manage that business and that growth. And then obviously, when you're running a software as a service or a subscription business, there's a lot of uh, value in the margins, and you can really get very interesting margins in the high 70s and the low 80s as a margin business is very, very uh, interesting, just because of the the cost of goods sold and and, and software and how the economics run. So the way we think about it is, look, these are very big markets and we want to grow into them. At the same time, we've been public now for 13 quarters. Not that I've been counting, but if I were, it would be 13. And we want to make sure that we are building the right kind of business that has durable long-term growth. And we're investing into these markets, but we're doing it so that, you know, whether you're um, some of the largest uh, Wall Street uh, buy-side investors, whether it's T. Rowe or Fidelity or um, you know, you go down the list, have confidence that these are stocks that they can start to build significant positions around. And to do that, you want to show that you can build high growth, but you can do that in a responsible manner. We've been fortunate. Business has been good. If you look at the rule of 40, we have outperformed the rule of 40 significantly uh, for a while now. We, got, we view it on a, a trailing 12-month basis. We've been outperforming the metric over the last two years. And we're really focused on striking the right balance, as I said, between optimizing revenue growth and expanding free cash flow margins. Look, we're going to continue to make investment decisions. We believe we're going to ramp our go-to-market and innovation in the big markets we see, but we're going to be disciplined. I mean, I'm not going to start spending money and having the wheels come off the train. I want to do that and continue to grow aggressively, but do that so that I'm building a, a durable, long-term, interesting, and valuable business. I mean, so far, the market's uh, rewarding you at, uh, at, I think, $25 billion market cap. It's uh, it's impressive how what you guys have done and, and, and the markets have liked it. So it sounds like you got to just keep doing what you're doing there. And uh, and as, as long as these growth rates can continue, the markets will keep rewarding. Um, as you think about what's happened this year with the crisis and the pandemic, is there you know, I think some of the narrative has been that it's just accelerated trends that were in place. Uh, how have you seen that? Is that, did it accelerate, disrupt? How, how do you think about coming out, out of it 
um, what the opportunity becomes. Yeah, absolutely. H happy to talk a little bit about that, Jeremy. I mean, um, if you think about the, obviously we are we are here in, on July 1st of 2020. So we've been experiencing the COVID-19 global pandemic now for the better part of this year. Uh, it's probably coming on 2022 20, weeks, something like that. You know, I think uh, I spend a lot of my time talking to our enterprise prospects and customers. Uh, I'm the executive sponsor of probably 25 of our 50 largest customers, and I work with three or five of the largest prospects every quarter. So, uh, you know, even this morning, I was talking to literally a Fortune 10 CEO about what they're doing in their business. And what I think COVID-19 really has done is it's caused companies to rethink their approaches to technology and security. You know, some industries have fared uh, those changes better than others. But I think overall, COVID-19 has sparked a larger discussion about how we work and what we need to do to protect employees and companies and customers. And you certainly see some accelerated trends. I mean, I think that, you know, zero trust is one uh, that I would certainly point to. What that means for your audience is, you know, the, the four walls of a building and the firewall to access information, which is what information technology really looked like in the corporate landscape, you know, call it 15 years ago, that's really uh, dissolved, right? Look, you have an iPad that you probably have on your desk. I've got a phone, a laptop, and two different iPads. And of course, those are different operating systems. Um, some of them might be managed by your company. Some of them won't be. So just ensuring that you, Jeremy, have the right access, the appropriate access to the right information at the right time on the right device, and that that authentication is continuously monitored that's really what the zero trust principle is. I've seen that really accelerate. Um, you know, secondly, I've seen digital transformation. I mean, if you do not have, you know, look at the commerce numbers, right? I think from uh, 2010 to 2020, e-commerce as a percentage of commerce in North America grew from six to about 16% over that time. Since January, 2020 to July, 2020, we have gone from 16% to 27% of commerce in North America is electronic now. So literally the growth that it took a decade to do, we have redone in five months. Wow. So if you as an organization do not have a delightful, and by the way, we're not going back, right? We're not going back, that's not going backwards. So if you don't have a delightful e-commerce or digital experience you know, today and tomorrow, your business is not gonna survive. And then finally, I think everyone realizes the opportunity and the obligation to set up remote and flexible work environments, given the uncertainty that's ahead of us in terms of when we can all be uh, you know, sitting side by side in an office again in close proximity. So I think those are some of the trends that have accelerated. On the other side, I think what we've done a number of things to help organizations, right? We were obviously able to quickly convert to remote work. We've talked about uh, this concept called dynamic work for over a year now that we've been implementing. So it worked out well for us. Dynamic work is, has two parts. It's dynamic workforce because more and more our employees want to work from remote destinations. Field salespeople are always out in the field. They're actually not at their desk. If you actually do the math on uh, how many people are actually sitting in an office at any one time in a business like ours, it's much less than you actually think when you run when you actually look at all the data. And then it's about uh, dynamic workplace. So we want everyone to be able to work from anywhere, anytime. We'd started implementing that as it turned out at the very beginning of 2019. So we were fortunate in that that conversion to remote work uh, due to the nature of our technology and business went very quickly. What we're doing is we're trying to support others in attempting to do the same. So we launched a program, Okta for Emergency Remote Work, which is Okta services for free to all new customers. 
single sign-on, multi-factor authentication up to five apps for all their users, just so that everyone can very quickly and securely convert into that program. We also accelerate deployments for customers like FedEx. Um, you know, a lot of companies, when they have earnings, they put out these uh, net new sales PR. We've really been focused over the years on customer marketing, making customers successful. Customer success is our number one corporate value. And I think that pays out uh, in dividends uh, are very clear on that. So when we have earnings, we try and put out what we call go live press releases. And we did that one at the end of uh, earnings at the end of May. We did a, a FedEx go live. And FedEx was able to go live with 85,000 employees across 250 applications in basically 36 hours. So we've been working with FedEx for a while, getting them ready. I talked to them at the end of the year and in January, and they're like, yeah, you know, we think May or June will be a great time to get ready and go live, and we'll set that up. And I said, that sounds great. Then I was talking to Gene Sun, the uh, CIO, in like late February. He called me. I'm like, Gene, what's up? How's it going? He's like, uh, yeah, so we're going to go live like next week. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, you know, you mean, you know, a, a sample group, maybe a hundred folks, a pilot, a couple apps. He's like, no, no, no. Like we got to roll out 80,000 plus on 250 apps. How about next weekend? And I'm like, you know, Gene, I, I love you. I'm a big fan of FedEx. You know, that that's something we can manage. Like, is that something FedEx can manage? And he's like, yeah, with your help, I can. And they did it. 36 hours. 85,000 employees, and these are critical apps, Microsoft Office 365, ServiceNow, Zoom, Salesforce. I mean, the critical front office applications, they did it seamlessly. They were very successful with it. And as you can help companies like that do that, not only obviously do you make them successful, but I think it gives everyone else the feeling of, whoa, I can maybe do that too, and it's empowering. And I think that's something that we're getting into more and more conversations with large enterprise about. Fascinating. I mean, that's a great, great example. Customer success story. Uh, when you think about the tech space generally, you know, it's been a there's U.S. has dominated everywhere. You know, you don't, you don't see as much of these tech breakouts in, let's say, Europe. You're seeing a little bit in China. How do you think about the global market for Okta and competition and just and where you see the tech developing around the world? Uh, you should be a you should be a sell side analyst because I think you just baked three questions into one. Nice job. Oh, I have a second part to that, completely unrelated to the first part. I loved it. So um, I'll try and break those. If I've gotten a little bit better at talking to my friends as sell side analysts, so let's see if I can break them out for you, Jeremy. So the first one was about our international expansion. Um, uh, it, it's a huge opportunity. I mean, the the problems that we're helping everyone solve, right? Of hybrid uh, enterprise infrastructure. Um, you know, the on-prem infrastructure, plugging it into all these new cloud services, this digital transformation, and everyone focused on enhanced security, you know, everyone working from dynamically and remote. These are big trends. They're across every company size, every industry, everywhere around the world. And so it's just a question of, like you said, the timing of adoption and where it kind of flows. Our business has predominantly been North America to date. I think uh, currently it's about 84% uh, of our business, if I'm not mistaken, is from North America. So 16% from the balance of the rest of the world. Look, the rest of the world is half the world's economy. So that's not acceptable. We need to do better. We're very focused on that. We've had a top level corporate strategy initiative around international expansion. Obviously, it's been a little bit impacted by what's happened recently with the COVID-19 global pandemic. Um, you know, we've in the last 18 months, for example, or the 18 months leading up to the beginning of this year, we'd opened new offices of, of size and import in Paris, in Stockholm, in Munich, 
and we had big plans to expand not only Sydney, where we have a big office today, but also to the rest of Asia. So we've really been on that track. Look, I fly over there. I personally help the team for the entire week. We explain what's going on. We talk to the press. We talk to the prospect. A little harder for me to jump on an airplane and fly to Tokyo or Singapore tomorrow, but those are still initiatives that we have. Look, we're playing the long game. So if we get delayed by three or six months, it is what it is, but we're still very focused on that. So the international expansion opportunity for us is a huge one. Um, there's a lot of value that we can provide. As you said, there's been a lot of cloud adoption in North America. So there's a lot of quote unquote low hanging fruit for younger companies like ours. But as you mature, there's no reason it shouldn't be 20, 25 percent plus of the business. The challenge, of course, is, you know, and I whenever I talk to the head of Europe, he reminds me, he's like, Frederick, I'm doing great. It's hard for me to grow the number because the growth rate of the overall company is so big as it is that I have to outpace that. And I'm like, yeah, I know these are champagne problems, Jesper, but they're still problems. So we need to fix them. So, yeah, over time, certainly there should be more of a mix from international. You know, a big part of that, obviously, is channel. Uh, we've hired a, we've had a great head of channel join the company a couple years ago, a guy named Patrick McHugh. He's done a phenomenal job. Uh, he's driven uh, partner driven business was less than a third of business on any given quarter when he joined. It's now uh, well north of that and growing healthily. So we're very happy with that. Obviously, channel is a big part of that internationally. Look, there's 27 countries, languages and cultures in Europe. I'm not going to be in all 27. I'm going to be in the five big markets. The other 22, I still want to attack them, but I'm going to do that with partners. So we've seen a very good growth in our uh, channel business, and it, we've seen a good growth with the global system integrators, but it's early days. I mean, they're getting hundreds of folks uh, trained and certified. Uh, Deloitte, PwC, Accenture, and the rest are getting folks trained and certified on the Okta service so they can deliver and implement at scale. And they're starting to bake us into a lot of these managed services that they're offering on the marketing cloud side of the world for, for digital transformation, but it's early days, you know, and as we go, as they build up practices, they're going to bring us into more and more places. So that virtual cycle is just getting going. Uh, I'm happy with the progress. Like I said, as an entrepreneur, you always want more and faster and bigger than yesterday. So we need to do be better there. We will continue to do that. But yeah, the opportunity is a global one. We're very excited about that. Uh, we're definitely not taking our eye off the ball there. You talked also a little bit about, and I think that kind of leads into your third question, which was around, um, hey, how is cloud uh, deployment doing in the rest of the world? Look, for us, it was pretty simple, right? We started in North America. We opened a, a UK office. There's now you know, north of 100 people there. Uh, that business is going very well for us. And then it's a natural third segue over to Australia because it's English speaking. It's a great mid-market uh, economy. They adopt cloud services very willingly. So a natural place to go. Uh, but basically what we've been doing is following these cloud adoption cycles around the world. And now you see we've got large customers in all sorts of uh, areas, whether it's, um, you know, Dubai International Airports and Emirates are customers of ours. Uh, NG, uh, formerly GDF Suez, is a very large uh, French, but really multinational energy company based in, uh, in Paris, big customer of ours. And you can kind of go, you know, Hitachi, big customer of ours in Japan. NTT is as well. So we're really starting to get these global deployments at scale. Uh, but yeah, huge opportunity, a lot to do, something I'm very excited about in the times ahead. That's great. Uh, as we're wrapping up, you you also do a podcast yourself. Uh, we'll talk about what you're trying to achieve and, and how, how you've enjoyed it if uh, if you're continuing continuing on in the in the podcast world. Yeah, well, I'm really just, just trying to follow in your footsteps here, Jeremy, and do the best that I can. So 
Uh, I do have a podcast. It's called Zero to IPO. Um, and the goal is really, it's a, it's a podcast about um, starting companies, building technology companies and growing them. Um, you know, I started it with a, a friend of mine named Josh Davis, uh, who's the founder of a, a group called Epic. Uh, he and I went to college together many, many years ago. He's a great storyteller. Uh, he and his partner wrote the screenplay to Argo, the movie, for example. And look, what happened was as we started building Okta, I was fortunate. Me and Todd got a lot of advice from a lot of the entrepreneurs who were ahead of us in the in the journey. So Brian Halligan and Darmesh Shah, the two founders of HubSpot, uh, also fellow MIT alums, were very helpful, gave us a lot of advice and guidance, uh, as did many others. And then as we started being fortunate and starting to get this success, as we started uh, preparing to take the company public, I started fielding a lot of phone calls from you know the next generation of enterprise uh, software entrepreneurs who were calling me and saying, hey, Frederick, uh, I'm really bummed out. And I'd say, why are you bummed out? You've got this great opportunity. You've got a great company. They'd say, look, I go to these mixers and it seems like everyone is crushing it. You know, Oh, how's it going? Oh, I'm crushing it. Everyone is crushing it all the time except me. And then I go back to my office and I can't close the customer or I can't hire anyone or I can't get the financing done. And, and, and I said, well, that's unfortunate. Don't worry. Everyone's going through tough times, but that's not the stories you tell you hear. And I understand why, but unfortunately, the media tells a barbell story. They tell the massive successes, Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs and so forth, or the massive train wrecks where there's a billion dollars of fraud and everyone goes to jail and it's a terrible story. They don't talk about what, and I understand, that's what sells press. They don't talk about what happens to most entrepreneurs most of the time, which is that you are just grinding day in and day out. We're 11 years in, and you know I was up early this morning talking to customers, I will be tomorrow again, like nothing changes. So I started kind of writing some articles about this, and then I had a few people say, hey, you should you should uh, record one or two interviews. And I said, that's fine, but people don't want to really hear, hear, about, hear from me. So I went and called a number of very successful entrepreneurs um, and, and company builders who I knew, guys like you know Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen and Anil Bushri and Patty McCord, who wrote The Culture Deck at Netflix, and Aaron Levy, who built Box. And you go down the list, and I said, hey, will you come on uh, uh, and do a quick podcast where you can tell these you know tough times that you had so that folks can hear it at home and be like, oh, man, look, you know these masters of the universe, they also had these challenging times. And that was the idea behind it. I became an accidental podcaster. Um, we started zero to IPO. I thought it was just going to be a couple episodes. I think it ended up being 12 episodes. Um, it, it did very well, zero to IPO, podcast.com. It, uh, we won a number of awards on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, we just actually finished with season two that came out where we changed the format a little bit. I got Eric Yuan did one of them, or Kino uh, Cornerstone did one of the episodes. Uh, Stuart Butterfield did one. Therese Tucker did one. Uh, Teen Zwo from Zora did one. So I got people to, um, we got Jeremy Bloom, who runs an awesome company called Integrate, also Olympic skier, also NFL pro, to talk about what it's like to be an entrepreneur, to go through tough times, and to talk about uh, what it's like so that people can get a sense of like, oh man, I personally believe, Frederick, that entrepreneurship is the best career in the world. You get to bet on yourself. You get to control your destiny. You get to solve meaningful problems. You get to create stakeholder value. You get to have a lot of agency in what happens. But you really want to make sure that people understand that everyone goes through tough times a lot and that it's not about how you, it's not about sitting there and being like, oh man, 
how's this going to happen? How's this going to work out? It's about realizing that that's part of the journey and how you can grow from there. So, you know, getting Ben Horowitz to come on the show and talk about how he tried to take LoudCloud public in 2000, where the NASDAQ got cut in half while he was on the road show. And then, uh, you know, he had three weeks of cash left. And then he got a call from his father-in-law that his uh, that his wife had collapsed. And he's like, man, do I have to go home right now, but then the company's bankrupt. I've got three more days. He shows up the next day on the roadshow and wears uh, a jacket and slacks that are the wrong match because he was just so out of his mind. He's like, I got to get through all this. And when you hear that from these people who are well-known, who are very successful, who are illustrious, I think it just gives everyone else confidence that it's like, oh, they went through it. I can go through it too. That's a great way to end our discussion. It's been great, Frederick. Thank you so much for coming on Behind the Markets. Hopefully we'll check in, keep up with your story. Thanks so much for, for doing this. Thanks a lot for having me, Jeremy. I really appreciate it and I really enjoy your show. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Keep up the great work. We'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.